Every year, Gallup puts out a State of the Global Workplace report. In it, they track the most recent employee data and workplace trends. In their 2022 report, they asked 68,000 people in over 140 different countries about their lives and careers. Their data showed only 21% of global employees are engaged at work. Just 33% said they were thriving in their overall well-being. Stress among the world's employees reached an all-time high of 44%. The data shifts somewhat between countries. For example, workers in the U.S. and Canada tend to be more engaged than average, but they're also some of the most worried and stressed employees in the world. In short, there are a lot of us who don't like our day jobs. Many people just aren't finding meaning in them and would rather be doing something else. This was originally going to be an episode about jobs. Weird ones. A full list of the strangest careers I could find from history. But I ended up finding one so interesting that it became its own fully, beautifully weird episode. Today, we're traveling back to Georgian Britain, to uncover the history of ornamental garden hermits. These were real-life human beings paid to dress strangely and live as eccentric recluses in the gardens of wealthy landowners. We don't know the exact stats on worker engagement and well-being for this unique career, but given what we do know, they had to be pretty low. Join me as we explore what just may be history's weirdest job. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. If you walked through a sizable, well-tended English garden today, you might stumble upon all sorts of lovely things. Neatly trimmed hedges, a yew or two, walkways through well-kept geometric layouts, perhaps some sculptures, colorful perennials and annuals, some ground clovers, and some nice flowering herbs. Rewind to 18th century England and you could add a full-grown live-in hermit to that list. It became quite fashionable for wealthy landowners to hire someone, dress them up however they thought an ancient druid may have looked and pay them to live on their estate as a hermit. That was a legitimate job in the 1700s in England. A little bit in Scotland and Ireland too, according to Atlas Obscura, but this fad was mainly a Georgian-English phenomenon. These hermits, which from the sources I found always seemed to be male, would live in a shack, a small cottage or hermitage, built by the wealthy noble wanting to show them off or even sometimes a cave, if there was one on the property. But why, you may be wondering? Well, according to Gordon Campbell, a professor of Renaissance studies at the University of Leicester, who published a book called The Hermit in the Garden, From Imperial Rome to Ornamental Gnome, this strange, short-lived tradition may have been inspired because of a hermitage that belonged to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Hadrian was in power from 117 to 138 CE. 
He was the third of the so-called Five Good Emperors, during whose reign Rome expanded its borders and generally enjoyed a period of prosperity, though there were still plenty of revolts, wars, and people not too keen on Rome pushing its way into their territories. Hence the famous Hadrian's Wall, a 73-mile fortification built of stone that can still be seen in the northern English countryside. Rome began its conquest of Celtic Britain with Julius Caesar in 55 BCE, and the Caledonians, who lived in what is now Scotland, continuously fought to keep the Romans out of their territory. Despite somewhere around 30,000 of them being killed in 81 CE by Julius Agricola, they remained steadfast opponents of Rome. Hadrian built his wall to, quote, separate the Romans from the barbarians, and you can still visit it today. According to English Heritage, which cares for over 400 historic sites, the wall included a complex system of communications and defenses, an earthwork ditch, two major roads, numerous forts, mile castles, and turrets. Hadrian's Wall was the inspiration for George R.R. Martin's Wall in Game of Thrones. Hadrian had a villa in Tivoli, just outside of Rome. You can still visit this 2,000-year-old villa for about 11 euro. In the 16th century, ruins of a hermitage were unearthed here. It was a structure inside of a small lake, just big enough for one person to retreat inside. After that was found, Pope Pius IV built one for himself. Religious devotees isolating themselves inside of small structures was not a new phenomenon. People had already been doing that for centuries, and not just in England. But the discovery of Hadrian's Hermitage may have rekindled their popularity with elites, which led to the eventual fad of hiring your very own garden hermit. Gradually, hermitages went from religious and introspective spaces to fashionable ones. It isn't exactly clear which wealthy landowner started the trend of populating their hermitage with an actual hermit for novelty, but in the early 1700s, having one was all the rage. According to Mental Floss, finding a hermit could be difficult. Sometimes landowners who were seeking a recluse would take out advertisements, like this one from The Courier in 1810 that's searching for a, quote, a young man who wishes to retire from the world and live as a hermit in some convenient spot in England, and is willing to engage with any nobleman or gentleman who may be desirous of having one." Unquote. At first, this sounds kind of nice. Getting to live a quiet, introverted life tucked away in a bucolic English garden, the worries of the world left to those outside your gentle hermitage. But in reality, this was not as peaceful as it sounds. There were some pretty strict requirements for hermits, and they could be gross. Ornamental garden hermits were meant to look rustic and mythical, and Georgian landowners thought that meant they had to be unkempt and dirty. Really dirty. Hermits had to let their beards grow as long as possible. They weren't allowed to cut their finger or toenails, and they were forbidden from bathing for years. If you were a garden hermit, you'd have to be okay with just really letting yourself go. Hermits were also restricted to their hermitage and garden. 
They couldn't leave or talk to anyone. There was an ad for a hermit run in 1797, and it read, quote, The hermit is never to leave the place or hold conversation with anyone for seven years, during which he is neither to wash himself or cleanse himself in any way whatever, but is to let his hair and nails, both on hands and feet, grow as long as nature will permit them, unquote. That was a real ad. Some estate owners didn't even want their hermit wearing shoes. They usually had to dress in robes, specifically in clothes designed to make them look like ancient druids, and that would sometimes be accompanied by a dunce-cap-looking hat. Think Gandalf the Grey, only dirty and without any magic. It does appear that some hermits were allowed to speak occasionally to party guests, and even interact to a degree. They could pour the wine, or possibly read some poetry they'd written, in order to entertain guests. I'd love to get my hands on some 18th century ornamental garden hermit poetry. Can you imagine what they were writing about? Probably a lot of feelings in there. So we do have evidence that at least some hermits were allowed to have human interaction on occasion but only if it made the estate owner seem interesting to their guests. According to Atlas Obscura, introspection and somberness were prized among the elite, and that's why they expected their hermits to embody those qualities all very visibly to their peers. Given all a hermit had to put up with, it's no surprise that finding someone to be your hermit could be quite difficult. According to Mental Floss, some estate owners would put advertisements in the press that offered food and lodging, as well as a stipend to attract applicants. A hermit was a must-have accessory, and some elites were willing to pay well for one. Charles Hamilton, youngest son of the Earl of Abercorn, offered £700 for seven years of service to his hermit. That was at a time when the average male laborer made about 12 pounds per year. Women could expect around half that. 700 pounds for seven years seems like a good deal. But if the hermit didn't comply with Hamilton's strict requirements for even one day during those seven years, he wouldn't get anything. Hamilton wanted his hermit to be genuine. So, in keeping with the stringent expectations of the time, his hermit was not allowed to speak to anyone, cut his hair, or leave the grounds. Despite these demands, he did find a willing applicant. His hermit was found at a local pub about three weeks into the job. He was fired, and as far as any historian has ever been able to tell, Hamilton didn't try hiring any more hermits after that. A good hermit was just too hard to come by. Like Hamilton, many elites found themselves hermitless, which was a problem. They would try to entice potential hermits with everything except decent working conditions. Sometimes, when hermits were in short supply, estate owners would build hermitages, stock them with trinkets and esoteric items like skulls, globes, and hourglasses, trying hard to make it look as if a hermit lived there, but was just wandering around the estate somewhere else at the time. 
Let's look now at some of the more creative tactics landowners would use in order to get around hiring an actual hermit. And while we're at it, let's meet one. Right after this. What would you do if you received an emergency alert that said simply, don't look at the moon? What if you looked out your window and saw everyone on the street staring up into the night sky, transfixed? Would you panic? Would you look at the moon? From the mind of the brilliant up-and-coming director, Lauren Anthony, Wait Till Dawn is a cosmic horror film about the journey of six friends forced to fight their way through one catastrophic night as they come face to face with an ancient, unknowable, and all-consuming force that shreds their minds and takes over their bodies one by one. Help NYC-based indie film production company Human Pincushion Productions bring this terrifying story to life. If you're a horror fan who just wants to learn more about the film or donate to help indie filmmakers fight the studio system, check out their crowdfunding page on Indiegogo at igg.me slash at slash wait till dawn or click on the link in the show notes. But remember, whatever you do, don't look at the moon. garden owners would place a dummy inside their hermitage to give the impression that someone was inside. According to Mental Floss, others would stock their gardens with a life-sized mechanical automation of a hermit. When I first read that, I wasn't sure if it was true. I thought the 1700s were a bit early for mechanized human-sized automations. Then I found a story that proved my assumption wrong. Not only were people putting together mechanized objects by this time, but they'd already been doing it for centuries. And we still have some of these mechanized automations that are hundreds of years old. The older ones are doll-sized, smaller than the full human-sized automations that would appear later. But in the 1500s, inventors were already well acquainted with such devices. We even have one that still works. In the 1560s, King Philip of Spain commissioned a clockmaker and inventor by the name of Juanello Turiano to build him a small automated version of the deceased Franciscan friar Diego de Alcala, who was later canonized as Saint Diego. We still have this automated monk, and it still works. It's in the Smithsonian now. This mechanized monk is 15 inches tall, made of wood and iron, dressed in a brown monk's robe, and is holding a cross. Each of its body parts moves all on its own, via an assortment of levers, wheels, and cams. He's powered by a key-wound spring, and walks around in a square, turns, kisses the cross he's holding, and even rolls his eyes. There's a great video of it that I'll put in the show notes so you can watch this 460-year-old mechanical monk walk around. It's super creepy looking, but 
absolutely fascinating. According to Gizmodo, while many historians attribute the monk to Turiano, the inventor, there is debate on whether he was its actual creator, and even if it was supposed to be St. Diego. It may just be the likeness of a typical Franciscan monk. But its age is verifiable, and it was built around 200 years before anyone had the idea of hiring a live-in Georgian garden hermit. So it was definitely possible for a rich garden owner to commission an automated hermit. Apparently, there was a rather impressive real human hermit called Father Francis at Hawkstone Park in Shropshire, England. After he died, there was just no replacing him. No other applicant compared. So he was replaced by an automation that was placed inside a dimly lit hermitage. Sir Richard Colt Stourhead wrote of seeing the automation in what has to be one of the earliest bad reviews out there. He wasn't impressed with the mechanical version of Father Francis, writing, quote, The face is natural enough, the figure stiff and not well managed. The effect would be infinitely better if the door were placed at an angle of the wall and not opposite you. The passenger would then come upon St. Francis by surprise, whereas the ringing of the bell and the door opening into a building quite dark within renders the effect less natural." Unquote. Sir Richard probably would have loved leaving Yelp reviews. If you couldn't find a hermit and you didn't have a mechanical one, but still wanted more than just an empty hermitage to show your guests, you'd have to get creative. According to Mental Floss, English naturalist Gilbert White came up with a temporary solution. He persuaded his brother, Reverend Henry White, to dress up like a hermit to amuse his guests. A woman named Catherine Batty was one of those guests of White's while his brother was pretending to be his hermit, and she wrote about it in her diary, saying, Quote, in the middle of tea, we had a visit from the old hermit. His appearance made me start. He sat some with us and then went away. After tea, we went into the woods, returned to the hermitage to see it by lamplight. It looked sweetly indeed. Never shall I forget the happiness of this day. Unquote. The hermit in disguise must have been a smash hit. At least he was for Mrs. Batty. The trend of rich landowners hiring ornamental hermits faded with the onset of the 19th century. Like all fads, it too had to pass. It was difficult to find anyone interested in the job, and given the rather abusive working requirements and conditions, that's no real surprise. However, some of the actual hermitages from this era do remain, and you can still see them speckled throughout the UK and Ireland, if you know what to look for. There's one in East Essex, in Manor Gardens, Eastbourne. It's a small yellow building, no bigger than a walled-in gazebo, with a thatched roof. Of course, not all hermitages housed actual hermits. But these simple walled structures still evoke a sense of contemplative reflection. Though the demand for hermits has worn thin over the centuries, there are still a few places left where you can apply. High above the Austrian town of Zolfelden, not too far from Salzburg, there is a hermitage carved out of a cave, nestled high up into the side of a cliff face. 
For the last 350 years, this hermitage has been occupied, and the town has always been able to find someone to take the job. The job requirements for the Zolfelden hermit are strict. No hermit is allowed access to a television, computer, or digital devices of any kind. There is also no heat or running water. Unlike the silent hermits of the Georgian era, the Zolfelden hermit is required to speak to pilgrims who make their way to the hermitage each summer if they seek their counsel. The hermit can offer advice or just an ear to listen. The job is unpaid. However, this position is part-time. The hermit resides in the hermitage and has access to the adjoining chapel from April to November. The cliffside is just not inhabitable in the winter months. Thomas Fiegelmuller, a hermit who left the post in 2017 to pursue a writing career, said though the cell is Spartan, the nature is beautiful, and he enjoyed the good conversations he had with visitors. However, he did receive criticism from a few tourists for not having a cowl, the hooded robe you'd see on a monk, or a beard. It still seems that some people think a hermit should look a certain way. Although Thomas is right about the nature, the view is mind-blowingly spectacular. You wouldn't think this unpaid post with such restrictions would have many applicants. But it is a competitive and prestigious job, especially since this is one of the last occupied hermitages in Central Europe. According to an article from the Smithsonian, competition for this job can get heated. In 1970, the hermit in residence was quite shaken when someone fired a shotgun into the door of the hermitage. Turns out the shooter was a local who was upset he hadn't gotten the job. The occupying hermit was not injured, but did decide then the job wasn't for him. Fast forward to 2017, the town of Zolfelden was searching for a new hermit. At least 50 people applied for the job that year. This time, the town chose a guy with a beard. The job went to the then 58-year-old Belgian man Stan Van Utrecht. He said he'd long dreamed of becoming a hermit, but the opportunity had never presented itself. Stan said he liked the idea of combining peace in the mornings and evenings with the company of visitors during the day. He was a trained survey technician when he applied, and Catholic deacon, who had experience working with the homeless, prisoners, drug addicts, and psychiatric patients. Perhaps it was his background in counseling others that put his application at the top of the list. Though the beard probably didn't hurt. He accepted the job and began in 2017. Everything I've been able to find out about him is from 2017. So if anyone out there has an update on the Zolfelden Hermit, please shoot me an email. I'd love to know how he's doing. So there are still hermits out there, just not the strictly ornamental garden variety. And I get the allure of wanting to separate oneself from the, what, feels like chaos of our daily lives to live in a quiet reflection that you'd hope would blossom into a feeling of being at peace with yourself. Given that so many applicants out there applied for a difficult job that pays nothing, 
it seems there is a very human desire to recharge in solitude in beautiful places. When Henry David Thoreau built a cabin near Walden Pond in Massachusetts in the 1840s, where he lived in the forest for two years, he wrote that he did it because, quote, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived." Unquote. Like all of us, I think Thoreau was searching for meaning, a meaning that, according to Gallup's most recent State of the Global Workplace report, many don't find simply in a day job. And if that's you, and the daily grind is getting to you, it's okay. There's more to you than how you get that paycheck. So find your cabin in the woods, your hermitage, whatever that looks like. A beach day, an afternoon walk in the woods, the corner table of your favorite coffee shop, a cozy chair by a fireplace, or a front porch. There, you can be a hermit, if only for a few precious moments while you drink your coffee. Like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, guard well your spare moments. They are like uncut diamonds. Discard them and their value will never be known. Improve them and they will become the brightest gems in a useful life. Quick update before I bid you farewell today. First, as always, thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast out of the ocean of podcasts out there. I know every podcaster says thank you, but I genuinely mean it in a way that makes me want to run really fast up a mountain when I think too much about it. Secondly, this podcast is about to be three years old. The History Cash Podiversary is August 30th. I have not missed a single episode or taken even one break during that three-year span. And that's because this podcast is what gives me meaning. I love it, and my life is so enriched learning these histories and sharing these stories with you. But I've also got a huge list of things I haven't had time to take care of between having this podcast and keeping my day job. So the next two episodes will be uploaded from the History Cache Cache. Episodes that were released a long time ago in place of something new. That will give me some time to take care of some stuff I haven't gotten to in a long, long time. Until I do post a new episode, which will be three episodes from now on October 12th, I'm freezing the payments on my Patreon account. I don't think my patrons should have to pay anything while I upload two older episodes. So if you are a patron, first of all, you're the wind beneath my wings. Second, if you didn't see the announcement on the Patreon page already, nothing will be charged to you until the next new episode, though I will still be posting the normal Patreon-exclusive feed. Again, this short break in new material will end October 12th, just in time for something spooky. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, 
stay smart, stay curious, and remember to enjoy those precious moments. Until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.